is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Okay, so welcome along to the Enter Sad Men podcast, the podcast with metal in its soul, which aims to take you on a trip down hard rock's memory lane with the purpose of creating a hall of fame of rock and metal albums. Um, we are loosely sticking to a period between 1970 and 1995 for our album choices um, on the basis that we kind of believe that's metal's golden age and uh, we're not going to waver from that view. Or the, the, the parameters might change occasionally, but that's the 25-year period we're looking at. This is episode seven, which means we've already reviewed, scored and ranked 21 albums over the first seven episodes because we do three albums per episode. And when I say we, I mean me, Steve, and my chums, Richard and Mark, who I can see now on Zoom are like coiled springs waiting to get stuck into tonight's show. Um, if you've not been with us before, it's probably worth highlighting the format. What we do, we decide a week before the episode, the theme or the genre for this episode. We then listen to three albums of our choosing, talk about them, score them track by track, total the numbers up give each album a total score and see where it gets to on our evolving and ever-growing league table of albums, our Hall of Fame. You found us, so you know where we are. To those who haven't heard us before, we're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. Um, We've got a Twitter page, we've got a Facebook page, we've got a website, entersadmen.co.uk, which is full of good stuff. You can check out the episode's guides on there and there's plenty of room for comments on each of our episodes and we'd like to hear from you because it's not just about what we think it's about what you think as well so as i say seven episodes gone number eight is this evening and mark what have we got to look forward to tonight uh so well it's a very very different show isn't it uh this week to last week um when we were in the mosh pit um so this week uh we decided to go to the other end of the spectrum and do some a-O-R, or as I've been referred to all week as A-O-R. So, um, yes, we've been we've been caught in uh, adult-orientated rock, or if you're listening from America, adult-oriented rock. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, so the three albums, well, I, uh, I, I prevaricated and chopped and changed my mind quite a lot um, over the course of the first sort of... 12 hours or so but i eventually plumped for uh a an album from 1980 it was the ninth studio album by ario speedwagon um their biggest album biggest selling album uh which was high infidelity um so uh that was my choice richard you chose what i chose from 1981 uh journey's best ever album in my opinion and that was escape close call actually nearly chose reo uh, amongst a couple of others so it's going to be fascinating uh hearing these two uh, up against each other but then steve's come in with the uh, phantom blue of this week i think um, <laughs> and steve what do you want to introduce your choice yeah, it, well, it wasn't meant to be a wild card. And then I saw what you two had, had chosen, and my immediate metaphor that I thought of was that if the three of us were cars on the front row of the grid of the British Grand Prix, I'm the Morris Minor. But I'm absolutely happy to have selected Strange Ways' second album, Native Sons, 
AOR, I always thought the A in AOR probably stands for album, American, whatever, but certainly they're not American, they're British. And, um, well, I love them to bits and I hope to persuade everyone else that they are worth loving to bits as well. So those are the three albums. Um, let's just take a little snippet, listen to a little snippet of What Lies Ahead. Okay, well, I hope that gives you a flavour of what we're about to thoroughly enjoy together. Um, And as we said earlier, we do these albums always in chronological order. So that means first up is Mark and REO Speedwagon's High Infidelity. Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. So my first encounter with REO Speedwagon, and I'd like to point out that this is the second week in a row that I've been in the 1980s, guys, as well. But my first encounter with REO Speedwagon was when I bought this album. And for those of us of a certain age, and if you're listening to this in the United States of America or anywhere else in the world, this will mean absolutely nothing to you. Um, But I bought this through the Britannia Music Library. Do you, boys, do you guys remember the yes. music? Yeah. So you used to pay a, c- a certain amount of money. Well, you didn't even pay money. What happened was you joined and you chose your album and they would deliver that. And unless you cancelled it, unless you cancelled your membership, they just keep sending you their album of the week, their album choice of the week. And there was a book uh, equivalent, book club equivalent. But I bought it through, through this. And um, I, I have absolutely no idea why I bought it. I think I probably bought it because they had a fairly limited rock section. And I'd already bought Rumours That Way by Fleetwood Mac, which which might have been another of my AOR choices on another day. Um, but this was kind of the probably the heaviest option on the list the next time I came to do it. So this thing arrived. I hadn't heard any of the singles. Um, REO Speedwagon had been around for quite a while by the time this came out, as I said at the beginning, this was their ninth studio album. They'd been through a plethora of singers in the, their early years as a touring band around Illinois, which is where they're from. But they had a very uh, core, uh, and Kevin Cronin, who um, is exception of a short break, has been their singer for uh, since 1973. 
yeah, they um, they chopped and changed singers. He arrived in seventy three, but after that, they became they they were a really stable um, lineup after his arrival. So this was an absolutely massive album for them. Spawned, I think, um, well, a number of singles singles, but three massive hits in America. And you said this during the week, Richard. You said the thing about this album is it's it is just one big sing along. It's just one big singing party, and. Um, I mean, we'll come on to, I, I, I say, I, I've got this theory, right? I couldn't work out why it was called High Infidelity. But I think this is a concept album in a very loose way because all of the songs, well, most of the songs, are about infidelity of some sort. That's the kind of the context. You both presumably know this album reasonably well anyway. So how long had it been since you'd listened to this? Because for me, I hadn't listened to this all the way through for maybe 12, 15 years. Hand on heart and with some degree of shame, I don't actually think I've ever listened to it all the way through at all, ever in my entire life, which is um, not through an ignorance towards REO Speedwagon, who were just they're just one of those super groups you're acutely aware of growing up, and there's no reason to think that I wouldn't have listened to it other than I just never got round to it, I think. So this was a pleasure to do so, and I think... I mean, you'll have to correct me, Mark, but I think this was quite a change in sound and tone and everything from what they'd pretty much done before. I mean, from little snippets I've heard of stuff previously. This just, it, again, I was thinking about what Rich said earlier about that, you know, every song's a single. This is just an album that um, it's laced with humour and good tunes. And it's just, it's just a real good, fun album. And to that end, it's been, yeah, an absolute pleasure to listen to. This for a period, I mean, when it when it came out, was the only thing on my turntable. So, I mean, I was a massive Ario fan. I, I, so I, I discovered them bef- just before uh, this came out. So I had, you know, I've referred to this, this um, compilation album I had called Kilowatts, which was released by CBS and Epic and it essentially just featured a lot of their rock stars um bands that were around at the time and um two of the bands i got into as a result of listening to kilowatts this had been you know i don't know 79 or very early 80 were reo speedwagon and journey we'll come back to the journey one uh next but yeah so so on on um on kilowatts there was a song called back on the road again by reo speedway which was off of their nine lives album the previous album to uh to high infidelity got massively into that and as a result bought the, they did just released a best of called a decade of rock and roll which covered um the first uh, 10 years of uh, obviously of their of their career from 70 to 80 um and um is i mean it is a great introduction to ario and then off the back of that love that this came out bought it and yeah it, it just absolutely love it and I, in this last few days, I dug out my vinyl version of it and stuck it on. And probably the last time I put that vinyl on, that vinyl LP on, probably was 25, 30 years ago, something wow. like that. Wow. Uh, so it's been, it's been a joy. But, but why do we forget these albums? Why do we not play them? Is it uh, because the moment... I chose this eventually. I chose this um, last 
Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. But the moment I put it on, it was like, oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. You know, th- this, from the very first chord, or the very first drum beat, actually, you just, you're back. And it's like you've never been away from it. Mm. But why do we not play them? And it's not, I mean, this isn't the only album we're, over the weeks and months ahead, we're going to say this about, you know, they're going to be albums, much loved albums that have sat gathering dust or, you know, gathering bites now that we're digital. And, you know, I don't, I don't get it. We just, do we just forget? Do we, do we move on to new fads and trends and fashions? What is it? What is it that stops us coming back to this? I think we absolutely do. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. I mean, music evolves, doesn't it? And we evolve with it. And you, we, I mean, we never quite grow out of these things, but because a, a lot of the stuff we've been listening to, will you in particular, Mark? I mean, you've barely ventured past 1979 thus far. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not like the little grey cells have let you down completely. You can still remember this stuff. And um, But for, for, for this, for an album to have an impact, no matter whether it's from 1980 or 1950 or 2020, You've got to get off on the right on the right note, and we, we, we've not quite been going through our albums track by track in great detail. But it's an absolute stunner of an opening track in in Don't Let Him Go, which is what I was. I mean, you you, you boys were doing your WhatsApp in earlier in the week and quoting the lyrics from it, which I knew nothing about. And I just thought this is absolutely hilarious that these boys could be singing that stuff. It was absolutely priceless. I mean, I don't know whether you've got the lyrics in front of you. I haven't, but it was um, it was just so funny. And it's a great song. And also the point about the song, which could obviously just be a piece of AOR, but you know, I was listening to it, and there's a bit of psychedelia in there. There's a bit of hoedown. You've got the hand jive beat. I mean, it's just it's everything other than heavy metal. It's just it's just a really good. Oh. I love the um, I just I just love this I love the story behind the song. If it if if ever if anything you read is true, the fact that Cronin went into the studio with a tune in his head, said, "Right, I'm playing this on the piano," which he didn't play. The boy said, "Well, that's not an REO Speedwagon song." He said, "Well, since I'm the bloke who writes REO Speedwagon songs, that's now an REO Speedwagon song." Or something. I paraphrased him, but you just thought he knew. Do they record this stuff and kind of have a sense of how massive it's going to be? Or is it just another song for them? Well, I think they felt about this album that they had created something pretty special. Can't believe they would have thought it was it would become as absolutely immense, you know, as as it has. I think the impact of it must have dawned on them pretty quickly because "Keep on Loving You" was the first single because it was released before the album came out, about three weeks before the album came out. And again, if I'm right in thinking, it was a top 10 hit in this country, which is pretty unusual for, you know, that kind of music. I know, you know, big stadium rock was a big deal in the late 70s, early 80s, but a top 10 single from a group like REO Speedway, and that's um, that's quite something. So they'd have known straight away that um, they were probably sitting on a piece of gold. Yeah, I mean, and it got. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, it was only for a week, but it actually made number one in the billboards in uh-huh. the US. So, I mean, it, it was, you know, and then I mean, they always knew that they were going to um, put out this. You know, the, the one, two, bang, bang was going to be "Keep on Loving You," followed by "Take It on the Run." So, in those two, they knew. So, I mean, Cronin really pushed. I think that I think the um, the record company wanted in your letter 
as the second single, and um, they they put their foot down and said, "No, no, that we're gonna we're gonna blast them." <laughs> and uh, yeah, they said, so "Take it on the run" was the, was the second single. Uh, we'll come on to this in due course, of course. But in your letter, I, I just I, I've I, I've never been able to quite rationalise in my head. Um, it seems so out of place on this album. Oh, I'm glad it's not just me. Because no. I, I thought it's it's almost like a prom song, which has just been um, yeah, well, chucked the, in there to fill space. I, and I don't get while I like the, the the story behind the song, and and, it, and I don't mind the reference to the fifties and sixties because there's an awful lot of different. You've made that point, Richard, that because of what they've done before, there's an awful lot of different styles and genres running through this album. So I don't mind that, but it just, I just find it incredibly tiresome and enormously repetitive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it, 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 I, I was. I remember when I first bought this album. You know, when I was, what, I was a fifteen. It, I mean, with my limited musical knowledge at the time, it kind of reminded me of the Beatles, and I didn't like the Beatles, so I didn't really like the song. They thought it was a fifties, fifties, sixties kind of vibe. But it, as you say, with particularly, I mean, the three massive things on side one: we keep on loving you and don't let him go, and take it on the run. Um, Follow my hearts. Yeah, good fun. Great guitar interplay between Gary and, and Kevin Kevin's vocals, uh, and then in your letter is yeah. If that's a misstep, and yeah, you can you you might argue actually it's just a yeah a nice little curio sitting there at the sort of tail end of uh, side one, but um, they're back on it for this, aren't they? I mean the the, the, the solo. Yeah, I mean because we cho- we chose our uh, or one of our favourite guitar solos for the for the bios on our website. And I must have, yeah, when I heard uh, Take It On The Run, actually, he, he's, Richrath is a fantastic guitarist. He really is. And again, it, it does that, 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 that really short, sharp solo that just perfect keeping with the song. And yeah, it's brilliant on Take It On They had a decent producer as well, didn't they? Yeah, Kevin Beamish. I mean, blimey, he had some form. So he did, I mean, he worked with REO Speedwagon uh, on the previous two albums. But he also worked on Jefferson Starship, so done some stuff with them. Um, and then he went on and he did um, did he worked with Saxon. He worked with Lionheart, which was the original kind of heavy metal super group um, featuring former members of Iron Maiden. And of course, he um, he did Down for the Count from Y&T as well. I mean, and Keel, I think he did. So yeah. They were under for the the, the sort of two albums leading up to this and this album, um, they were in some pretty capable hands production wise. Although, and we'll come on to this in due course, I think there's a, a gulf between the production quality of this and Escape, given they were released eight months apart. Mm. Escape was Kevin Elson, wasn't it? And Mike Stone, yeah. yeah. And Kevin Elson will appear more than once as this night goes on as well. We're just listening to, this will be your bonus. You'll know this because you do all the research, but we're listening to the wonderful Tough Guys, which I didn't know. And again, it's an illustration of the of the wit that runs through this this album. It kicks off with this brilliant childish conversation. And one of you two boys is now going to tell me from whence that childish conversation came. It was a TV show, wasn't it? And I can't remember the name of the bloody TV show. It was it was from the Valentine's Day episode of Little Rascals in the 1930s. And um, there you go. 
And I love but, it. I think it's an absolutely brilliant prelude to a track because it's just so out there, so weird. It's just fantastic, but brilliantly funny. But I, I, I love, interestingly, when it was released, Rolling Stone rated... Have a, a thing. Yeah, there's a thread, isn't yeah. there? I mean, yeah. it's not it's not a, a concept album in the in the way that, for example, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is a concept album, or to, to be a bit more kind of um, bizarre, The Wasps, The Crimson, Crimson Idol is a concept album, for example. But but there is definitely a thread that links, that kind of ties all of these tunes together in some loose fashion. And I think that's part of its charm. You know, the, the, the narrator in all of them, which will, you know, for purposes of art will say is kevin because he's singing it kevin cronin the, the narrator is always the underdog here you know we talked last week about vixen being victims in their lyrics you know always being shat on from a great height there's there's just kind of a wistful sort of resignation and disappointment in this in in the infidelity that the narrator experiences here whereas whereas actually you know the vixen kind of experience is bordering on abuse it's a bit of a shrug your shoulders that's life kind of thing it's what we've all been through and uh, yeah i'm probably related to it because i bugger all girlfriends at the time so i thoroughly enjoyed listening to it on my own yeah (laughs) but then you know I, i don't know about you as a kid at that sort of age or between the sort of age of 14 and 17, 18, yeah, you go through a lot of crushes, you go through a lot of, you know, on-off relationships, a lot of kind of girlfriends who are girlfriends, you know, one night and then in the morning, you know, they're, they're dumping you because they're, yeah. So there is, there is a kind of, we've, we've all walked that walk, I suppose, which makes it kind of slightly more relevant and tangible maybe, I don't know. So well, I suppose highs and lows, what were your what were you, let's start with the lows by the answers I get here well for me for me the actually the the, the lower point for me is um, we're listening to shaking it loose at the moment but um, the, the next track uh, someone tonight someone tonight was uh, sung by by Bruce Hall the the bassist um, uh, and I, I always felt that it was out of place yeah, I, I think more out of place than in your letter Steve, you're low. Yeah, that's really, this is why I love this thing. I, this is why I absolutely adore this, because I really like um, someone tonight, and possibly, <laughs> possibly because, not necessarily because of the identity of the singer, but I just like, I like that quite a bit of punkiness with shaking it loose. And they thought, what haven't we done? Oh, I know, well, let's chuck a choir in. Um, we haven't tried that yet, and I just—it just all felt a bit. Um, I don't know. The song just felt a little bit drab to me. Okay, so uh, for me, it is in your letter that—that's the one that I, I always kind of my my finger hovers over the the skip button every time. Um, and it is, I think, also it, it is an album again that suffers slightly from a, a, a weak finish, you know, compared to what's gone before. I mean, within the context of a. Yeah, an overall a very strong album. Yeah, it, it's fascinating what what you both said about uh, "I Wish You Were There." I think it's a brilliant finish. Um, <laughs> it is. You can just just sing it. You can absolutely belt it out. I was talking to 
I sent a message to you both about, you know, having this bigot fuck-off sing-along when I was out on my bike the other morning. When this was on, the people walking past me were trying to work out what I was on. <laughs> because it, the, the whole song is the biggest, it, that tempo, the, the, the great big notes. Um, and I, th- I think it, it, it kind of starts off country ballad Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, I get like, I get your enthusiasm as well. I just I just I just don't share your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's for me it's it is it it peters out a bit at the end. Maybe not that track, but we've gone through two or three tracks where you get a sense that they're sort of just labouring towards the finishing yeah. line. My, yeah, I, I love. I wish you were there, but I mean, you know, it, it's for me. You know, the the, the three absolute belters uh, are take it on the run and and keep on loving you and 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 don't let him go. And you know, apart from in the letter, in your letter, the the that that first side is just unbelievably strong. That nicely brings us round to strongest tracks, or your you know, the high on the track. So you got. I, I think we're probably all going to be picking from one of three, but but which one? I can't put cigarette paper between them. Um, if I had to choose one, had it's that is those, those three up there equal for me? If you've scored them the same, they're equal. That's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Steve, well, I've got I've got three actually, and they're not the three you thought. I've got um, certainly don't let him go and keep on loving you, which I prefer just overtake it on the run. But I also like. Um, and Richie touched on it out of season. I just think it's um, it's a real feel good number. Um, it's got that kind of car roof down, heading to the coast feel about it. I always thought it's um, it's very infectious in a good way. And um, yeah, the, the, there's a few summertime numbers on this album, and I think that's the kind of yeah, that's 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 possibly the pick of them. But yeah, I'll go with that. It's got the that's same cool. it's got the same score as the other two. But yeah, I'll go with that. And. I, uh... I haven't really um, given this enough thought or, or enough considered thought, but I'm going to go for Don't Let Him Go simply because I think as an opening to an album, um, it's just massive. I mean, it sets the tone for the whole album. Everything about that song is is maybe not quite perfect, but it's not far away. So, yeah, that would be my, my high. Interesting. So... Uh, that's Ario Speedwagon's High Infidelity, Done and Dusted. Um, we will rank it and score it later. Um, but it is now time to fast forward by eight short months uh, to Richard's selection, which is Journey's Escape. Opening album sleeve notes. So they formed in 1973, uh, pulled together by a guy called Herbie Herbert, who was one of Santana's roadies. And um, I mean, two of the um, founding uh, members, uh, Neil Sean and Greg Rowley, played with with Santana. And and I suppose a bit like Aria Speedwag, and they went sort of through uh, just a few evolutions of band members. Uh, And then it it all started to fall into place when Steve Perry joined them um, on vocals around 1977. Then Steve Smith, who's an unbelievable drummer, I'll come back to him in a bit, joined them around sort of 79. But then it was when Jonathan Kane, the keyboard player, joined them from the Babies um, in, uh, in, in 80, 81. 
that uh, they really took them up to um, another level. And I think it was really I mean, Jonathan that when he came along, just the additional songwriting and his own musicianship, he was sort of the final piece that enabled them to to, to produce uh, this, which was just you know a, an awesome uh, album. I mean, for me, as I said earlier, I first journey I really you know, recognised and, and got into um, was a track on this uh, Kilowatts album, which was. Um, <laughs> The Line of Fire from their, their 1980 album, Departure. That got me into them. And then I bought the first song off of this, first single off of this, uh, off of Escape, which was Don't Stop Believing. I hadn't actually ever, hadn't heard it, just bought it on spec. I thought, right, well, that, that's got to be worth a go. It was also on picture disc, so that probably was a, an added um, incentive to, to get it. And, and then from them I bought the album and... Uh, and the rest is is history. I'll come on to some of the other the bits in in, in a while. But I mean, when when did you first uh, discover this this album, gents? I first discovered this album by accident by a friend of mine who was magnetically drawn to it on a jukebox at my local pub in Chalfont St Peter, and two songs in particular. And I'll come to that in a minute. And they are two songs that I heard every night at the Jolly Farmer pub in Chapel St. Peter from this very regular drinker who was a good bloke. I shall name no names. I'll tell you the story in a bit. But with two tracks that good, I thought this has got to be an album worth listening to. This is probably in the early 80s, probably three or four years after it came out. Uh, bought it on vinyl, even though we were in the CD age, I still bought it on vinyl. And I just thought this was astonishing. I absolutely adored it all the way through. I mean, Steve Perry's voice is just something to die for and um, one of the greatest voices in rock. I love this album and I don't play it anywhere near enough, going back to what Mark said earlier. And having played it so much over the last week, I'm now thinking, where the hell have I been for 30 years? Because it's, um, you know, it's still fantastic now. Absolutely fantastic. Mark? I have heard all of these tracks, well, no, not all, not quite all of them, but I'd heard... Most of the tracks on this album, out of context of the album. So somebody had either played me one, or I'd heard one on the radio, or I'd heard one, you know, uh, you know, probably on the Friday Rock Show. Believe it or not, I'm not quite sure I believe it myself. I do not own this album, but I know 80% of it really well through having heard it in all sorts of different ways. But I had never heard this album front to back until this week. Time has been incredibly kind to it, hasn't it? You could release this album with this level of production today and it would still it would still do everything that it, it, it did in 1981. It, um, the production values are astonishing. The songwriting is, uh, is out of this world. You know, it, it appears on... I think it appears on every best of or best AOR list I've read this week. And it's worth saying as well that REA Speedwagon have also been in the top 10 of every list that I've seen this week. And Strange Ways have all been in the top 30 of every list that I've read this week, even though I haven't I hadn't heard Strange Ways until, um, until Wednesday morning, last Wednesday morning. I think 
and I don't know enough about Jenny's backstory or back catalogue to know this implicitly, but I I think I get the sense in this album that it, it's a coalescence of everything just coming together and and everything you read and, and you know we did, we all do quite a lot of research for these shows. There's absolutely no doubt Jonathan Cain is the secret, the X factor in in this, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he he released something in. I mean, obviously Perry and Sean, who were the the two other main writers, but he he, he, re- he released something in them as writers, and then also enabled others in in the band to express themselves uh, much much more. But there's another album that makes, I think, the top five in every list that I've seen over the last week as well, and that's Frontiers. Mm-hmm. So they release the greatest AOR album ever in 1981. One, yeah. And then two years later, they go and release, let's call it the fifth best AOR album of all time. I mean, there's no, there's that's no fluke. That is no fluke. That's that is absolute platinum level songwriting, and and just the hook lines in it. Um, you, know, you you listen to um, "Don't Stop Believing," and yeah, uh, we we know, I, I can't believe there's anyone on the planet who hasn't heard that song fairly recently. Um, and and you think, well, it can't get any better than that, can it? You know, they've 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 kind of shot their bolt early on. Um, and then, but that isn't my favourite song. My favourite song on the album, uh, and and neither are you know neither is um, who's crying now, which is the other big hit from it, obviously. But it, I don't know. It it's it. I think we talk quite glibly about being blown away by albums, but I was this week hearing it in its full context, in the way that it was designed for me, for for me to hear it when it was you know. Mm. Um, assembled all those years ago, um, 40-odd years ago, to listen to an album with that, and we, we, I'm sure we'll come on to the production team in a minute, but to listen to an album that has been as beautifully crafted, is as sonically advanced as it is, given the period when it was released. Bear in mind, this was released a year after Demolition that we you know we listened to a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it's... <laughs> I just, yeah, um, like I say, we, we use the phrase a lot, but but I really mean it. That this just blew my mind this week. Obviously, we're, we're now into Don't Stop Believing. The, the thing that got me as well about all three of the albums that we're listening, we listened to last week is that they all start, that their big numbers all start with signature piano, mm. don't they? You know, that, that piano riff has got, to be that piano run in Don't Stop Believing has got surely the most well-known piano intro to any song ever. Isn't well, it? I mean, as, as, as an unapologetic Van Halen fan who will um, listen to Jump all day long. Well, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, 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 no. I was going to make the point that this is, um, this is, this is, a, this is a scale up. And what I would say is that Talk about having faith in your new pianist. You know, can you kick the album off for us, Jonathan, please? And then um, to to do to do it as so beautifully as this. Um, it's, it's not just beautiful, is it? It's simple. 
there's nothing there's nothing complicated going on no it is a very simple you know motif piano motif and it's absolutely and, and you talk richard you know over the last couple of weeks about albums that need air and this is this is an album that absolutely needs to be played outside of headphones turned up loud and i mean I, yeah i've been i've been spending i spent the weekend painting um yeah i had it on uh while i was painting a bedroom and um you know i, I looked out the window and my neighbors who are um in their mid mid 60s were dancing in the garden <laughs> I was told to shut up when I was singing this. It, why is it about this album, Hot Weather and Painting? I was painting the fence and um, was singing, had the headphones on, was singing this. And like all like all middle 50s men who can't sing but think they can, I thought I sounded superb. But the cry from the window from upstairs told me otherwise and um, I, I had to stop. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about, you know, like with Stairway to Heaven and, and these tracks that are just played so much. I mean, I, I I never tire of this of this track. I mean, I, yeah, so uh, this has had eight hundred and thirty four million plays on Spotify. It is it it is as fresh every time I hear it as it was the first time I heard it. Which for a song that, with that level of popularity um, is amazing. I do feel though that we could get sucked into the trap of talking about the big number. Um, whereas actually the one that's in our ears at the moment, Stone in Love, I mean, you talk, Steve, about top-down driving songs. Yes. <laughs> it, it's absolutely that, isn't it? Hot, uh, summer, love, brilliant, brilliant track. And that, and that keening guitar at the top of its range. Yeah. And what, what, what I like about it so much is that and I, I think it was the 2.30 mark when they go into that bridge. Um from the main body of the song to a guitar solo that you're kind of apprehensive about, but he doesn't let you down. It's it's um it's just it's a fantastic play out the whole thing set against that brilliant backbeat that uh, you know Richard's referred to before the engine room. Rob Valerie's bass really it comes out on this song. It, it, the solidity of that that that's the back. The, actually, the bass is the backbone allowing Steve Smith to sort of go around, swirl around on the kit. The big thing on this album, isn't it? The, the interplay between the various instruments, where, where they're taking some of them some of them up front and they get their back in the back a bit, but it's just the support is brilliant. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Everything is tethered by the bass, isn't it? Everything comes back to the bass line. You can't be an AOR front man if you're a shit singer, can you? No, you don't get away with this. There's no hiding. Yeah. There's no hiding. Um, and and the, the thing about Stone in Love, we're on to Who's Crying Now now, but the thing about the end of Stone in Love is that they're even prepared to sacrifice on the fade probably the best guitar moment on the whole song <laughs> as it goes out. And it, and, but that's the confidence that the that the band has got. They don't feel like they, it needs to go on and on and on. They're, they're just, it's done. And it's one of those songs where, if if it was an instrumental, you'd be quite happy listening to it. It doesn't. The the vocals are great and they they add to it, 
but it wouldn't lose a huge amount if the vocals weren't there because it stands alone as a piece of music. But you know, who's crying now is the was the next big single. That you got Steve Perry, his voice, Ross Valerie's bass, and Jonathan Cain's piano. And that that's it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then and then it allows everything else to come in um, yeah. in, in a second. And when it's all st- and when it's all stripped back. And you you really do hear what an incredibly good singer Perry is, don't you? With what are yeah. those quietest moments before it all kicks in, it's um, it's well, he's he's just a, a, a titanic voice. This is the song, incidentally, that this is the one that takes me back to the Jolly Farmer in Chalfords and Peter. This was the one that used to go on the jukebox pretty much every night without fail, without fail. When my friend, you know, as I say, I shan't name, came into the pub. But it's not a bad soundtrack to a broken heart, is it? Yeah. It's interesting though, because it's because we've just you know we've listened to we've now just listened we're halfway through listening to Journey we've listened to one of the the other great AOR albums of all time but Cronin and Perry you know great frontmen for huge humongously huge bands but chalk and cheese in terms of singing aren't they but could could Perry sing for Aria Speedwagon could Cronin sing for Journey I mean not that it matters as a moot point but because um, they are very individual they're very unique talent. I, I can't hear Kevin Cronin singing Don't Stop Believing. To listen to Keep On Running now, um, I mean, you know, it, it's, I would say, as, as a belt as before, and in, in, in my view, in the, in the next track, it's still They Ride, one of the finest finishes to a side one ever. Um, so it, it, it suffers a little bit for that, but still, I mean, it's a, it's a good track. Oh, it's, it's it's a great track. If this if this opened the album, you'd be you'd be drooling over it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, it's very true. <laughs> I mean, you know, it is about um, the company it's keeping on on side one. Yeah. I mean, sh- shall we shall we talk about um, production? Uh, the producers on this, so Kevin Elson and Mike Stone, that they're, they're like the the unseen members of the band for me, mm. because I think they ultimately have, um, yeah, that they, they ultimately play such a massive part in, in, in creating the sound, don't they? Mike Stone, I mean, I mean, you think of who you know who who he'd um, worked with most of you know all of Queen's albums through the through the seventies. Um, obviously, then went on to. Work with Asia, and I mean, even, you know, well, I mean, White Snake. I can understand from his work, particularly with Queen, what he then brought to the recording and the production of this. Yeah, which is precisely the point I was going to make was that here is a here is a guy who has learned at the feet of the masters, both in terms of the band and the producers that he was working with. You know, he would have engineered. Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, this is a this is a man who's who is not um, a stranger to defining a band sound. There is more than a passing resemblance in the the sheer weight of the drum kit sound on this album versus how um, Rogers sounded through all those Queen albums. We're list- we're just. Listening to "Still They Ride," and you got any other comments about that? I mean, I, I just think, tell you, the, the finest finishes to a side one 
ever. I mean, that, that whole song just builds and builds and builds. Um, again, back, we're back to structure, aren't we? But but it, it, it um, it's just a brilliant, brilliant ending. Well, I, that, that, sorry, that's why I've just gone quiet for three minutes and however long it takes. I've just been listening to it and it's because um, it's an absolute favourite. It's, yeah, it's a ballad and it's slow, but it's 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 incredibly touching. You, you almost feel it could be um, that sort of conversation in the chorus answering the the, the instruments. It, it's, it's like something out of a West End musical. I absolutely, it's, it's a really lovely, lovely track made for this band um, that they can pull it off and... And I absolutely echoed what you said earlier, Richard, that uh, it's a brilliant way to close off the, the side side one where keep on running through kind of no fault of its own is is the weak link. You know, they should have just put four tracks on side one and done the other six on side two. Do we think that that is the strongest side or one of the strongest side ones you could possibly own and listen to? Wow, that's quite a big call, isn't it? It's close. There's one track in particular on side two I absolutely love. You'd, you'd stick that on if you if you change that for keep on running. I mean that would yeah that would that would make side one <laughs> fairly unbeatable. <laughs> Which is the one you're talking about? Because I'd swap out keep on running for escape. Right. Which we're listening to now, it, it's yeah. an absolute belter, isn't it? It's, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's my favourite track on the album. Yeah, it's it's quite messy, isn't it? But it's not clearly. It's structured messy. It's 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 a it's a brilliant maelstrom. I love it. I think it's a fantastic track. It's the only song in my painting odyssey over the weekend where I just had to stand and do nothing other than move and headbang and play guitar and with a paintbrush you know it was just i i love it you swap that out put that on side one thank you very much everybody else can go home yeah it's, it's a lot yeah it's, it's a escapes heavier it's rockier but um but there's still but there's still room to hear jonathan kane's piano and, he, and he's going down the keys on it and everything you know so there's so much going on. It's not crowded, but there's so much going on, and it's rising and it's falling, and it's there are bridges in here where you think, "Where's it going to go now?" And then it takes off again, and it's just mm. amazing. It's an amazing song. But again, that's the uh, that's got to be the skill of the production, isn't it, to get that balance absolutely right? That you know, five component parts, and they're not drowning each other out, and they're working so you know, hard skill in itself, isn't it? It's not just Perry's voice here is it, it the backing vocals um where the, the 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 harmonies and when they come in i mean on this one they're, they're caught they're in the background all the time supporting him uh, but but there are points where there are points when the harmonies fuse with the instruments and you don't know whether you're listening to human voices or instrumentation it's astonishing it's an astonishing piece of music yeah i remember you saying much the same last week about doomsday for the deceiver <laughs> I still marked it higher than Richard. I know. I know. Now, that, now we're talking chalk and cheese. Doomsday for the deceiver compared to escape. Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to lay it down now, Rich. There's a little bit of country in here coming along, isn't there? It's a great track. In terms of the musicianship on this, how Neil Sean's guitar, his guitar styles, the different styles... It displays throughout the album, um, and then the, the combination of the techniques. I mean, it's, it's 
you know, on, on this one, as you say, it's like a you know, bit, you know, country, big ringing chords, and he's thrown in some harmonics and brilliant, brilliant guitar work on this track. So, was, which which was the which was the track that you would have swapped it out for? Don't stop running, Richard. Uh, I would have swapped Mother Father. No, no, I can't Still. believe you said that. Why? Well, because I wouldn't, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, th- I thought I thought we were uh, I, th- I thought we were fusing. I thought we were kindred spirits. <laughs> no, on that we disagree. I love that track. Absolutely love that track. They reckon this album cost something like eighty thousand dollars to make. Again, whether this is true or not, but the, the, the figure I found sort of across all formats, I don't know if they've been counting streaming and stuff like that. I guess they're not. I think they must be talking about the full album. But globally in various formats, they reckon it's racked up something like 33 million in sales. That's not a bad return on investment, is it? No, absolutely. Well, it, it went nine times platinum in America. I mean, admittedly, going platinum in America is not as hard to do as it would be to go nine times platinum in in the UK. Um, no. But, yeah, that's still some serious business. Yeah. Well, my, my money-making stat is that Don't Stop Believing is the number one paid digital download song originally released in the 20th century. That's up against the Beatles and God knows what else. But, um, you know, it's been covered to death and... Yeah, that's what I read. So let's talk about Mother Father, because that seems to be a bone of contention. Yeah. So we're now listening to um, to arguably the windiest track on the album, in, in, in my in my view. And you, you're going to shake your head and uh, suggest otherwise, aren't you? I'm interested in, in what, what's why you think this is not, not such a, a good track. I... I I mean, it apparently was created from two separate ideas. So whether if you, you feel it's it, it's a bit disjoint, but I just like the I like the story. Um, I think his particularly um, Steve Perry's voice on this is absolutely unbelievable. Some of the notes he's hitting, it's you know, it's got real power. Sing along, just love it. Yeah, I mean, I'd never question Perry's voice at all on anything, and and you're right. You know, he could sing the phone book, but um, I just, I just don't think, I, I just, I don't think it's a bad song, incidentally. I just think it's up against some extraordinary competition, and it's probably it would, it would be my weakest on there. I think um, it just seems to ramble a bit, but you, you see a purpose where I don't see it. You see a direction which I, which I can't quite follow. Well, should we c- come on to? Um... The weak points and the strong points. I mean, like Ferrari, should we, should we just go around us in terms of the... Well, before, before we do, Richard, there's, there's yeah. certainly one, because we haven't even touched on open arms yet, and the elephant in the room, um, which is the relationship between Shern, Kane and Perry, isn't it, about writing ballads? Because yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't as harmonious as you get the impression from, do you, given how perfect this album is. It, it, there's, there's a there was tension, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think. It, I mean, I mean, Jonathan Kane wrote "Open Arms" um, when he was with the Babies. Did you read that? Yes. And, uh, and, and John Waite dismissed it as sentimental rubbish. <laughs> um, 
Of course, then John Waite realised how much money could be made from sentimental rubbish and released Missing You. Um, yeah. Uh, so he, he got it uh, eventually. But yeah, yeah, I mean, Jonathan Cain so suggested it. And yeah, particularly, I mean, Neil Shun didn't like it at all, even through recording it. I think he finally got it when they were touring and the crowd, when he heard the crowd singing it back at them, that he realised, oh, okay, this has probably got some legs then. Whilst perhaps, like, Neil didn't particularly like this song, he still contributed massively in, in terms of, you know, what he played on it and, you know, it ended up on the album. What, what, are, your, what are your views on Open Arms? I, I, well, I think it, I think it's brilliant I, because of the beauty of the structure of the song. I, I don't see any of that tension. I, if, if there was ever an issue, it's gone, isn't it? And um, you know, Steve Perry made the point. He was shown queried how he'd be able to play in this thing, and Perry basically said, "We'll work it out. We'll figure it out, and we'll find the right arrangement." And well, it's a towering song, isn't it? It's um, it's 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 a fitting finale to an album that features you know two or three of the finest power ballads of all time probably so um it, it looks perfectly in place and about your views mark i think it's a lovely song i can see why the crowd goes mental for it live i'm not sure it not sure it's quite there yeah in the context of you know it's a, a a huge album that's almost perfect. You know, this is not a weak track, but <laughs> I, I think it is. I think it's probably a live song. I don't think it works quite as well in a studio. But several better songs on the album than this. Yeah, is it your weakest or not? Uh, no, I don't think it is. Um, but interestingly, I'm reversing yours because I, I actually, I actually prefer. Dead or Alive to lay it down. I think had they been swapped in the running order, you'd probably feel the same way. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because uh, they, they are quite, yeah, quite, quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so would, you know, if they'd appeared in a, in, in the reverse order on the album, um, would would lay it down be the imposter? Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, but this is not an album with a weak song on it, let's be honest. Highs then, which I think is the more interesting question. Well, shall I kick off? I've, I've actually given, I think I've only given a couple of tens so far, and I've given two on this album. I always, I always make the point that music's got to take you somewhere. I mean, not only has it got to be bloody good, but it's got to take you somewhere. And, and two songs on this album, um, as I explained, Don't Stop Believing and Who's Crying Now, are two, are two tracks that just take me somewhere. And after all this time, 40 years down the line, they still sound as wonderful now as they did back then. They were faultless in 1980, and they are now. Okay. Um, so my my high point on this album, as I've already said, um, I think is Escape by a Nats bollock from, uh, you know, Don't Stop Believing, Who's Crying Now, Mother, Father. I, I'm with you, Richard, on that. I, I think that's a great great track actually but, but yeah god i mean there isn't <laughs> how do you choose how do you choose stone stone love just brilliant song and, and i could listen to that all day long as well they, they are 
you can get you, you can barely get a piece of paper between these songs. Yeah, for me, that first trio of songs. I mean, it's a bit like you know they're talking about as we have on uh, the, the the three tracks on side one of High Infidelity. Um, Don't stop believing, Stony Love. Who's crying now? Um, one of them will pip the others by, by a whisker, uh, depending on what mood I'm in. Which one did I? really really enjoy most and just thought oh jesus that is a, that is just so good I, i'm gonna plump for stone in love um the way that's that the way that song starts with the guitar and then the drums come in and it just goes i mean apart from the, the hook line and the sing-along again is immense so yeah brilliant okay so that is Journey's Escape. Um, I think we've got um, I mean, a couple of big contenders so far, haven't we, that um, might be threatening some of those in, in that top 10 of our Hall of Fame. And we now move on to our final album of this evening, which was a wonderful surprise for me because um, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of these guys. Really embarrassed. So, yeah, we'll, we'll come more about that in a minute. But, Steve, um, over to you to introduce your choice. Opening album sleeve notes. So we have a WhatsApp group um, ahead of these shows, and obviously I appreciated what um, what my two colleagues were coming up with, with um, High Infidelity and Escape, and thought, okay, that set the bar quite high. So... And I knew that what you'd been, I knew, Mark, you'd been umming and ahhing with another favourite album of mine, which was um, Fashion by Passion by White Sister. But I thought, well, there's, there's, a, there's an easy way out here, isn't there, which is to go for sort of Foreigners 4 or something by Toto or Survivor or Styx or something and um, just play the game and follow their majesty with, with a third one. But I thought, nah. I'd always had in mind that I was going to go for Strange Ways second album, Native Sons, which you might think is very much after the Lord Mayor's show, but it isn't. And, and I would say with genuine belief that Native Sons can hold a candle to anything that has gone before and anything that's out there um, in the AOR genre. Um, and not, of course, that it has to compete with anything that's gone before because, you know, this, isn't, this, is, this is an opportunity to revel in the glory of a, of a trio of AOR bands and Strange Ways are one of those bands and I'm slightly surprised in probably a little bit more than slightly that um that these boys weren't on your register Mark and Rich talk explain explain this absence in your learning yeah I know because I mean I mean at the time in the, these early early to, to mid 80s I would say that, I mean this was a real dominant genre you know, area of rock that I was I was into Journey and REO and Survivor and Asia and, and so yeah I I'm I say as I said at the at the, uh, the the top of the of the show I'm embarrassed and I don't know how I didn't know about them well I think that a reason was that they something happened didn't they I'm sure we'll come back to how this album was and that they're all of the, all their albums around this time were. Um, were marketed and, and pushed and, and promoted around, I don't know, the, the willingness of the 
us Brits to welcome a, a band from these shores doing this kind of stuff, not just from those from the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, but I mean, what's what's say what what what's fantastic but embarrassing in equal measure about these um, the, the, uh, these nights that we're, we're holding the, these uh, listen ins is uh, all the stuff <laughs> that I've missed. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, and I'm, and I'm glad to set you on the on the path to righteousness with um, with Native Sons, which, as I say, is their second Strange Way second album. And the reason I've chosen this one over, well, they've done several, but the first three were the three that stood out: the eponymously titled debut album, um, then this one, and then Walk in the Fire. And there were others during the nineties, um, but none that really merit any great forensic examination and the reason i've chosen this one is it's the first one that features the arrival of singer terry brock um who and again it's my personal view but he's the equal of any of the great aor singers um we've had two tonight in kevin cronin and, and steve perry and you know brock is right up there so brock teams up with this scottish scottish band they were from glasgow formed by the stewart brothers Ian and David, and they were, they'd actually been around as a band called China White from the late 1970s. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, came to nothing. Changed their name in 1985 um, to coincide with the release of their debut album. And on the mic of the debut album was, any guesses? Tony Liddell? Ring any bells? No. Well, there you go. And it, he, he went on to um, do an album with Tigers of Pantac. That was Tony Little. But the point about the first album was that it was a good album. It had all the AOR bells and whistles, a lot more guitar-driven, a bit heavier. But Little's voice wasn't the same as Brock's voice. And the big thing about this album is that the Bonaire label who hired them signed Kevin Elson, who we you know talked about earlier of Journey fame, um, to produce it. And so that, by any measure, made their first album one hell of a coup um, with Elson um, doing the production. But by the time it came to the second album, Elson had already made it perfectly clear that he wanted a better singer. And he knew he had Brock lined up to come over to Scotland um, and then to Zurich for the recordings. Elson, Elson actually didn't produce it, but bequeathed responsibility to an equally talented producer in um, John Punter and it was that combination that combination Brock and Punter um, which proved the master strike they also brought in by the way a keyboard player called David Moore so now you had a five piece with a world-class producer and so we got Native Sons um, which is a mix of pretty much everything you'd expect from an AOR band circa the mid 80s and late 80s so the, the ballads and the slow bits plenty of synths and a magnificent engine room backbeat and yet again you know the understated driving force of any band and certainly this band lots of lead guitar but never too much when credit to Ian Stewart given it's his band and I dare say he was dying to show off all the time but didn't all about balance collection of really nicely written songs all topped off by a sensational singer in Terry Brock and well I've said enough but what, what I will say is that um, in his Kerrang! review at the time, and I know, you know, I'm, there's a danger of 
putting too much emphasis on a Kerrang review, given what I said about Flotsam and Jetsam's doomsday for the Deceiver last week, which got 6Ks when they only go up to 5. But Kerrang gave this album, <laughs> Kerrang gave this album the requisite a number of Ks, which was 5, which is exactly what it's deserved. And Derek Oliver, who wrote the piece, said it was the greatest and most preciously perfect melodic AOR album of all time. And I, for one, don't disagree. Mark, you're nodding your head. Um, yeah, well, you, you asked the question, didn't you, right at the beginning? Um, you said, um, uh, how did this pass you by? And, and the answer to the question, Steve, is I was busy. I was very busy. Uh, do you want to know what I was busy with? Tell me. I was busy with Appetite for Destruction, Hysteria, Girls, 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 Permanent Vacation, Electric, Crazy Nights, Back for the Attack, uh, Pride, Once Bitten, Contagious, White Snakes 1987, The House of the Blue Lights, Among the Living, Dream Evil by Dio, Love is for Suckers by Twisted Sister. The list goes on. This came out in a really big year for rock. And um, and I think probably the reason that it never came onto my radar is that I think if you're a young-ish band in 1987, trying to find your voice in that noise, literally that noise, uh, is probably quite hard. Um, so uh, I, I, I equate this to, um, to to this. So I love on TV. I love I love the series The Blacklist. Okay. And um, and when I meet people who've never seen The Blacklist, I'm like, oh, my God, how can you never have seen The Blacklist? You must now go and watch The Blacklist, every single episode of every single season. And then I get this kind of really uh, depressing kind of unhappiness that comes with the fact that somebody else is now going to discover and enjoy for the first time something that I have loved for however many years the Blacklist has been on. And I figure you must feel like this, Steve, because I totally agree with you when you say that this band can hold a candle to anything that we've listened to tonight. I think their youth, the greenness of them, at sort of the sophomore album, um, means they that they're probably not as polished as we have, as the bands that we've listened to but but that's got nothing about that's nothing about their musicianship and i think if they had been six albums in we would have been hearing all about this band um but i, I just think everyone was too busy with everything else that was going on i think there are some absolutely colossal tracks on this album mm. Um, and it's been an utter joy to discover it because I'd never heard of it. Never, I mean, I'd seen, I, I'd, I'd seen, I'm sure I've seen the name. I'm, I, I'm something in in the kind of the, the primal element of my brain says I recognise the name, but I know I've never heard them before. Uh, probably from a Smiths album. Sorry, have, probably from a Smiths album. Didn't that have Strange Ways in it or something? Strange Ways. Here we come. Yeah. Um, I've got, to just, I've got to take you up on two things, Mark. First of all, A, they weren't that youthful, I don't think, because they've been around quite a while. And B, they were more polished than a genie's lamp, in my opinion. I just thought they were um, – I thought 
this album is so beautifully produced on a on a far away label in the middle of Switzerland. It, it, if this if this group had been marketed properly and sent out to play with a big um, on a on a on a big record label, they'd have had a they'd have had a, a, a five album deal straight away because the songwriting's masterful, and they'll there will inevitably be at some point over the next ten or fifteen minutes comparisons between Brock and Perry, um, and I'll kick them off there straight away. But um, I just think every component part of this band works so perfectly on every track um and you see it to a lesser or greater degree on this on the, the album that followed it uh walk in the fire um and that's it and then they're come and gone and they've come back and gone again and all sorts of things but this was i also think that i think they were slightly victims of the time Am I right in think? I mean, my contention would be that the golden age of AOR had passed in the late, in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. That was AOR's finest hour, perhaps, um, and that we were, we had moved on to Guns and Roses, and we were about to move on to Nirvana. And um, you know, while all these bands carried on delivering albums, and strange ways, they're still produ- producing albums. You know, two or three years ago. Um, they all keep going, but there was a there was a there was a purple period, wasn't there, for AOR? And I wondered if um, Strange Ways might have missed it. And of course, being British, I don't know whether that was a handicap or not, but it seems like one to me. So, um, I mean, I think I'd make a number of points in response. One is, of course, to remind the the listeners and Steve that it's not a competition. Um, <laughs> we're not. We're not trying to. We're not trying to, you know, champion our own uh, the the albums we brought to the table. But um, I, I, the other point that I would make is I prefer this album to um, High Infidelity. Uh, if I if I were going to take away, if I were going to take away these albums to a, a desert island and I had to choose them in order of preference, um, this this would be my second choice. Um, uh, I do. I, I absolutely agree with you that the high points on this album um, give anything on Escape a run for its money. Um, but I think the weaker moments are much weaker than the supposed low points on Escape. But their low points, I think, are higher than the low points on High Infidelity. That's really interesting. Richard, Richard, I could talk all night, but come on, let's have your two penneth. One thing that, particularly on Only a Fool, we've just listened to Only a Fool and then, and then So Far Away, those, those two tracks reminded me of Steve Hogarth Marillion. Season End and then Holidays in, um, in, in Eden you know, came out. Um, so, 89, 90, 91. I, I don't know. Were they <laughs> were they too late for some stuff and too early uh, for for others? I think the production on this album is good. I think it could have been better. I think it could have been fuller. And I'd love to know the story of the, the how they were promoted and built. There could and should have been room for them, even with all of the other noise going on. Yeah, 
It just sounded it sounded from from what I've read. And bear in mind, this is a band without a Wikipedia page. I know that's how off the scale we're talking here. So, and I, I, again, I go back to my point about British AOR bands. I mean, seriously, on 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 the fingers of one hand, name me some good ones. I mean, I thought of FM, you know, and I can't think it's shy. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, but yeah, all British. And um, this of course, this lot of course weren't all British when Terry Brock joined them. Him being a Canadian, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's a British origin, should we say? Um, but it struck me that the whole thing was just a kind of mess in terms of not knowing the label they were working for, um, the fact that they had three different producers for the first three albums, and then so one punter, John Punter, who, who um, produced this album, he left. But Bonaire, the the um, the record label I'd never heard of, persevered with them. Um, but Ian Stewart, the guitarist, took over production duties for the next album, Walk in the Fire, um, which, as I say, is a tough call whether that's better than Native Guns or not. Because Terry Brock always said his voice um, had reached its peak on that album, and and I get that he'd been with the band for a second album, felt more at home. But I see very little in them, but, but I, I like Native Sons just because it's their kind of here I am moment. But the point is, having gone through three producers in the first three, and then Brock left after the first album, Stewart took over singing detail as well as production. All got very messy, and you just thought, well, the opportunity's gone. That the opportunity had arisen when this thing came out, when Native Sons came out, and it didn't happen for any number of mysterious reasons that sadly I cannot defer to Wikipedia to help me out on. Um, and it's just kind of not worked, which is a real shame because this is the one song we're now listening, incidentally, to um, Good Night LA, which closes out Side A, one of several, uh, well, one of three really solid ballads on, on Side One or Balladish. Um, slow numbers on side A, um, and it's the one that was written by Brock. And it, it just illustrates quite how, I don't know, moody and passionate they were. It's There's just something very almost perfect about the song creation, the, the songwriting. I take your point about the production, but I also question it, and I, and I don't question you on many things like that because I know you know far more than I do, but... I just thought that um, the production allowed the band, all the component parts of the band, to work very well together. It's a small point. Um, I think. I think. I think the production on it's good. I think you're right in terms of it, it again allowed them to uh, allow the instruments and the music to breathe. I actually just said it could have been. It could have just had a little bit more attack to it. Mm. Just, just to, re, just to, because I, I think the music deserved it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's not flashy or flamboyant. He, he generally, he generally has good judgment with with, with the solos he's playing, um, and very rarely goes off into a yeah, here I am moment. Um, but he does it on Never Going to Lose It on towards the back end of side two, um, and I love the keyboard player, which is obviously a you know, prerequisite of this band, David Moore, who's such an afterthought. He doesn't even, he's listed in the, um, in the alternative credits on the back of the album. Um, he's not even listed as one of the band members, but you know, this, this album wouldn't be this album without David Moore on keyboards. So I, I didn't listen to the, the, the album that preceded this. Uh, presume you think I should have done Steve. 
the album that before it. Yeah, the first yeah, it was one. Okay. It, it was a bit. It was a bit heavier, a bit more basic. The album after it's the one I would thoroughly recommend. Walk in the fire. Um, good. The, the, these two albums with Brock on on the mic. Um, are both outstanding. I've, I've only gone for this one. I mean, the, the, put a fag over between the two of them, but I just like this one because I've got to it first, really, and I've got it on vinyl, and that's always a good sign. But one of my one of my favourite quotes about this album and um, is that it is I don't know where I read it, but they, it was called the uh, the best album that Journey never wrote, <laughs> which I quite like. But it's um, which I thought was quite an insult to strange ways because it sort of kind of suggests they haven't got an identity of their own. But it shows, if not a kind of, if not a relationship of any sort of symbiosis, you can see, you can feel journey in some of the sort of slower tempo stuff on this album. Certainly, certainly off, off side one, only a full so far away and good night LA. The side side two gets um a bit more up tempo. I tell you who they remind me of, and and. Uh... You may not remember them, but you've definitely heard them. Um, another British, good British AOR band uh, called Walk on Fire. Oh, I remember Walk on Fire. Graceland, yeah. Wastelands. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Blind Faith yeah. was the album, yeah. I was looking at that album when um, when all this, you know, when we talked about AOR. Isn't that bizarre? And I just I went for this one, but I do remember them. But, yeah, they... That, absolutely strange ways put me very much in mind of Walk on Fire. Yeah, who also didn't make it. it, it well, yeah, and who should have done. There's a trend here, isn't there? Yeah. Well, Walk on Fire didn't make it because they were they were signed to MCA, who didn't really give much of a shit about rock music generally, um, certainly not until um, they bought Geffen Records. Yeah. Um, so, yeah... Uh, and I mean, the, the other reality, of course, is that yeah, these were signed to. Do you say Bonaire? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, greatest of respect. Who the fuck are Bonaire records? Well, my yeah, my thoughts exactly. Yeah. Okay. And and unless you've got a massive distribution budget behind that, yeah, you, know, you, you don't you don't have a hope. I know. And Bonaire. I wonder with these with these albums. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, didn't we? Um, with the yeah, the the, the girls are loud um, episode. Uh, we talked about girls' school and the fact they were signed to Bronze Records, independent record label. Admittedly, you know, seven years earlier, when independents were still, you know, still had influence in, particularly in determining the genre, the, the development of the genre. But Bronze were an act, was an out, a, a label rather that that invested in its acts, and it had massive distribution behind it. Um, so you had all of that muscle going into the distribution and the marketing. You know, which I'm assuming Strange Ways didn't have in 1987. Right. Right. Signed to an independent record label that doesn't have the financial and commercial clout that the major labels have got. Yeah, I sometimes wonder why. Why do they sign our uh, bands and then and um, pay? Clearly, they've paid quite a lot of money for the production on this. Yeah, because you don't get this production. No, you know, Black Sabbath proved in 1970 from you know six days in the studio and a budget that allows you to buy 
you know, um, co-op sandwiches for your lunch. You know, yeah, this is you're talking about producers of the quality of, you know, Kevin Elson doing the first album and John Punter doing this one. I mean, these boys don't come cheap, do they? Presumably. Well, they'd have, I, I, they'd I, have had good things to do. They'd have had other offers, wouldn't they? Certainly. So, you know. Yeah, so they clearly saw something in this mm. man. The, yeah. the label clearly saw something. So our and, – and we're talking about an album, let us not forget, that makes the top 30 AOR records of all time – on every list that I've seen in the past week. Yeah, so, I've seen that as well, absolutely, yeah. So yeah. The question here is not is it any good, The question because that's that that's in in no doubt. The question here is why on earth didn't they make it? Yeah. Well, luck clearly plays a part and they didn't get any, but um, something's gone wrong in terms of management or I, I never got a sense that there was any there was no breakup in the band. The three of them kept together once Brock went and they've all reformed since and then gone separate ways once again. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those quirky things that happens in rock, isn't it? Some get the breaks. Yeah, some don't. So, should we talk about highs and lows then? Yeah, well, let's do lows, shall we? So, as I say, I think I think the lows are lower than, than on um, High Infidelity and I think there are more of them. But um, we're talking about lows in the context of an album that, as you rightly say, Steve, doesn't really have a duff track on it. So I, I think Empty Streets is is the one that I. It's just a bit wallpaper for me, but yeah. it's a bit vanilla. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, but I think in the in the clutch of songs around it, that would be my low. Okay, Rich. Um- for me, it, I, I thought side one was it was it had a real consistency and quality about it right throughout. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I feel they it, it, where it dipped a little it was the start of side two. So, um, so both the empty streets, stand up and shout, I thought were more straightforward and formulaic. And I mean, despite it was a good, it's a good song. It's got, I mean, a good. You know, good beat to it. I'll probably go for Stand Up and Shout as the one that isn't quite up there with you know, the sort of more of this sort of complexity in the in the arrangements and, and writing and some of the stuff on side one. Yeah. Well I I'll echo that as well. And I don't want to I don't want to labour it. That's enough of that. We'll talk about the highs and we're we're listening at the moment to um the towering guitar solo at the end of Never Going to Lose It, which is um you know what I think about Stuart is he's been um, he's been such a good boy over the entire album, but um, he really lets himself go in uh, in Never Going to Lose It. He is a very good guitarist, and um, I think it's it's what I was saying earlier about the balance of the album, the balance of the performers. You know, all sort of work so well together. Um, no one component ever kind of dominating the others. There's a kind of real chemistry between them. So I would say Never Going to Lose It would get my nod. Mark? Uh, so my high point uh, was, do you know what? It changed through the week. Um, danced off with the opening track, Dance With Somebody, um, then kind of flirted with where do we go from here. Uh, I couldn't really understand why all of the, well, no, many of the lists that I'd read were saying the track you have to hear is Goodnight LA because when I first heard it, I thought, well, 
yeah, all right, it's okay. But I mean, it's not, you know, standout track. No, 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 no. Um, I, 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 that grew on me over the week to the point where it spent a brief period at number one. But actually, in the end, I did come back to where do we go from here? I just think the hook line's fantastic. Um, you know, the the song construction is just uh, out of this world. Um, yeah, and that that's the one that. If, if there's a song on here that makes me want to, that, that is likely to make me stop what I'm doing to listen to it, it's that one. So where do we go from here would be mine. Richard? When I was listening to it, it kind of depended on the, the mood I was in. I'll probably plump for Only a Fool. Classic, classic AOR. I'm, I'm glad I've been the enabler of you to um, to visit the force that is Strange Ways, and hopefully you'll get many more hours of enjoying uh, And I do, honestly, heartily encourage you to... Uh, Give this more, give this more plays, and then um, make sure you listen to the next album as well. You will not be disappointed. So there we go. Then three albums uh, certainly reviewed. Um, it's time to rate them and put some scores on the doors. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. There you go. We, we've we've reviewed the three albums. As I said, uh, it's now time to uh, rate them before we rank them uh so we'll start where we started off this evening uh with the uh 1980 release of high infidelity from ario speedwagon let's go around the room steve what did you give kevin cronin and the boys i gave them 7.05000 okay uh which is a solid score Richard, uh, I gave him a seven point nine. Dead. I did just. I I love this album. <laughs> and when all things settled, uh, the dust settled on this. Uh, I came out with a score of seven point seven five, which gives Ario Speedwagon an overall average score total of seven point. Well, 7.6, 7.5, treble 6.7, if we're going to be absolutely precise, but rounded up, that's a solid 7.6. So uh, that is REO Speedwagon score. We'll get to where that puts them in the Hall of Fame uh, in a little while. But um, let's move on to the next album from the evening, which was Escape by Journey from 1981. Richard? Yeah, I, this... Um, this- Pipped uh, Ario uh, for me, um, so uh, I uh, uh, gave it overall um, an eight point one. Okay, and Steve? Yeah, wound up with seven point eight five, which is um, not as astonishing as it might have looked after the first three tracks, where I went ten, eight point five, and ten. But there you go. I was going to say that that's actually for for an album that 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 you gave two tens. <laughs> That's actually quite. I mean, seven point five is a really good score, yeah. but it's quite it's quite low. And I think it just that just that just reinforces what you you particularly have been saying all along, which is the weaker tracks on an album are whether you know whether we all perceive them to be weak or not. It only takes one of us to perceive a, a, a track on an album to be weak, and that will do for it, won't it? So, um, although having said that. Um, I, I, I scored this album at uh, – I didn't give below uh, an eight uh, to any track on this album. Um, and given that I had never heard it, it 
in its entirety as an album i'd only heard its component parts separately um i was quite surprised by my score of 9.04 so uh, that gives journey an overall average score of 8.33 which brings us on to the final uh, album of the evening strange ways native sons from 1987 an album that neither richard nor i had heard at all prior to uh, the last week but Steve, it was your album, so let's let it's the one you brought to the party. Let's let's start with you. Yeah, and I've got I've got a nice warm feeling here because I, I did uh, I, I came in full of apprehension and trepidation at um, wondering what you would think, and I thought you'd like it, and um, I think the marks suggest you did. So, Rich, what did you give it? Yeah, I gave it a, a, a seven point two. Um, I think it, I I really enjoyed listening to it. Uh, I I I don't. It's going to be interesting continuing to listen to it, whether it grows on me more. Um, but I'm obviously because I knew the other two albums so much. I listened to this most uh, over these this last week. Um, uh, doesn't in my view doesn't quite get up there with with Escape and, and High Infidelity, but yeah, still a, a seven point two, really you know good, well a, a good score. Yeah, absolutely, and um, but trumped by Mark. So, uh, as I said, when we were talking about them, um, by a hair's breadth, I I would take this album away to a desert island ahead of High Infidelity, much as I love High Infidelity. Um, So, yeah, I I really enjoyed um, discovering this album. So thanks, Steve. That's that's another one that's going to end up on my playlist. Um, But I scored it a 7.85, which, Steve gives them an average score of 8.3 it was always heading that way i did i did make the point that there was no um i didn't think there was a weak link on the on the album and therefore the lowest mark i gave for a single track was seven so um 8.3 doesn't surprise me in hindsight at all it's an 8.3 kind of album in my view and its overall score then is 7.783 okay so there you are, a 7.783 for a band two of us had never heard of before. That's not bad. Um, so let's, um, shall we head over and open the doors on the Hall of Fame and see where these three albums sit? Yes, let's do that. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So we, we did say, didn't we, that at the beginning of the, eve, uh, the, beginning of the show, we did say that we felt there were uh, there was at least one album um that we were talking about that was going to give the top three top ten a run for its money and it it hasn't disappointed um journey's escape scoring an, a, a massive 8.33 puts it up into third um place on the hall of fame list behind led zeppelin four and deep purple's machine head um richard it does uh, i mean you you brought these people to the party and, and they've only gone and unseated your favorite <laughs> time yes but i think again it's back to this you know that every time we do this and do this scoring um the combination of the three of us our different favorites our different low points and in particular, how we perceive the weaker points on on an album, um, I think it, it, it. I'm fine with it. I mean, obviously, I personally scored Moving Pictures higher. I prefer it as an album marginally, 
Um, but you know, um, it, it's it's lovely to hear um, you know how much um, you two love Escape um, as well. And yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, I th- this suggests that um, it would be our collective vote for the finest AOR album of all time, unless we might have something else up our sleeve for a future episode. Um, but I think it's going to take something pretty special, and I think it deserves to be up there. I mean, it is. It, 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 there isn't anything else like it. And, you know, and, and I think the fact that, you know, the, the scores are so close between that and Moving Pictures, I think they are comparable albums as well. So, you know, Escape gets into the top three by, you know, what was it, 0.002? Something um, like that, yeah, yeah. 0.02 of a point. Um, and, you know, for all your trepidation, Steve, um, I think we need to, uh, I think we need to do a, bit of this for strange ways confirming top 10 status top 10 number nine on the list be honest would you have predicted that no of course i wouldn't and i'm looking at that list now and i'm looking at nine strange ways 10 acdc 11 van halen 12 reo speedwagon and yeah there's, there's a little bit of pinching myself going on I, I knew, you know, I'm, it's easy for me to sit here and say I knew, but now you know. And, um, you know, in terms of a score, 7.78, it's it's a fantastic album. It's It doesn't it doesn't surprise me greatly that it's high up on the leaderboard, but does it surprise me that it's in the top 10? Yeah, probably, probably. But, um, you know, when the next album comes along, we'll see if, that, we'll see if we can go higher again. And then REO Speedwagon, um, just missing out on the top 10 place, actually. They they now enter the Hall of Fame at number 12 on the list. So uh, the top 10 in order um, after now seven episodes of Enter Sad Men. There are many, many games to be played. Um, but the top 10 is as follows. And number 10 is uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell, nine Strange Ways, Native Sons, eight, Strange in the Night, UFO, seven, Rat, Out of the Cellar, six, British Steel by Judas Priest, five, Women and Children First, Van Halen, four, Moving Pictures, Rush, three, Escape, Journey, two, Machine Head, Deep Purple, and sitting at the head of the table, and, you know, it's going to take something pretty special to uh, shift it, is Led Zeppelin's fourth album, Led Zeppelin 4. So there you go. Albums reviewed, rated, and now ranked. So um, now, just before we finish, we should tell you um, what we're going to do for the next episode. Um, and similar to the Godfathers, we're not we're not doing something where we each select um, an album, uh, but uh, we've collectively had a think. And we think it appropriate, given that he's not long departed this world, that we should have an entire episode dedicated to the magical little wizard himself, Ronnie James Dio. So next time we are going to discuss, review, rate, rank, what we consider to be three of his finest albums with 
different outfits. We're going to review Dio's own Holy Diver album. We're going to review Rainbow's Rising. And we're going to put those two up against Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell. <laughs> going to be an absolute ball. We oh, look forward to us, you joining us then. Thank you. <laughs>